my soul, don't grieve without hope. And if you missed that message, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to that message, not only because it'll be an encouragement to you in seasons of grief, which if we live long enough, we're all going to face them, right? Not only will it be an encouragement to you in that, but he gave some very practical advice at the end of that message for how to minister to someone who's grieving. And I want you to know that you can do that the wrong way. That even with the right intention in your heart, you can say the wrong things and you may be trying to be a blessing and you're not whenever you say those things to someone who's grieving. And so if you didn't hear that message, I want to encourage you to go and listen to that message. Oh, my soul, don't grieve without hope. Well, the Lord's given us another message from his word this morning in this series, Oh, my soul. And I'm just going to ask if you would pray with me this morning that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word, would speak to us personally and illuminate that Word to us this morning so that we wouldn't hear my words, but that you would hear His words this morning and what He wants to say to you. So would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the gift of your Word. I'm going to say that again. We thank you for the gift of your Word. Where would we be if you had not given us your word filled with your truth that we can depend on. God, in the various seasons and trials of our life, thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. And now this morning, Lord, I pray for each person who is hearing this message that your Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts that they would listen, yes, to the message and to the text, but they would listen mostly for your voice to tell them exactly what you want them to know. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, we give it to you as an offering to you, and we ask you to use it to refresh our souls and to set our minds on you. Give us the energy to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever faced a challenge and you weren't exactly sure what to do in that situation? Can you relate to that? I mean, that seems to happen to me every day, nearly every day, where I face a challenge and I'm not exactly sure what I should do in that challenge. And have you ever wished that you had the ability to correctly apply the right truth to the circumstances that you're facing? I mean, think about that for just a moment. That whatever your situation was that you were going through, that you had the ability to figure out what is the truth that I need and how does that truth apply to my situation? Wouldn't that be a game changer? If you had that ability, you know, when I think about a, an ability like that, it sounds a little less to me like a natural ability and a little more like a superpower. That ability to correctly apply the right truth to any 
given situation. My kids have this game that they play where they talk about their favorite superpower. Like if they could have one supernatural ability, what would it be? And you know, it would go something like, if this was one of them, it would go something like, well, I want to fly. Well, I want to have super speed. Well, I want to have the ability to correctly apply the right truth to any given situation. I mean, it almost feels like it's in that same category if you get real about it and think about what that ability would mean. Well, the Bible actually has a word for this superpower. It's a thing in the scripture, and it's called wisdom. Wisdom is that superpower. Wisdom is the ability to correctly apply the right truth to any given situation. And wisdom's a kind of superpower because, as we'll see in this message, God's wisdom is not natural. God's wisdom is supernatural. It goes beyond the natural. Our souls need wisdom. Think about the unrest that it creates in your soul when you have a situation that you're facing and you don't know what to do about it. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, it, it creates some real turmoil, turbulence in my soul, especially if that situation's important. If I know it matters to me, it matters to others, and I'm not sure how to handle it, it, it creates some unrest in my soul. Our souls need God's wisdom. And that's why the title of this message this morning is, Oh, my soul, in various trials, seek God's wisdom. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you open with me to James chapter 1. James 1, and this morning we're going to be looking at James 1, 1 through 8. So, to make sure this registers, the very first eight verses of the book of James will be our text this morning. And just as Proverbs is considered the wisdom book of the Old Testament, you guys have probably heard that, right? Proverbs is the wisdom book of the Old Testament. Many scholars consider James to be the wisdom book of the New Testament. They have a lot of commonalities in their features and how they approach the topic of wisdom. Before we dive into the main text of James uh, in, in the, the seven verses that follow, two, verses 2 through 8, we're going to start with James 1.1 1, 1, because James 1.1 1, 1 provides context for the book of James. And so here it is. You can read it with me. I've got it in the ESV. You can read along in your Bible or, or look at the screen. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. There's a lot in that verse. I know it just seems like a simple greeting, and we're not going to unpack it all because really we could spend a whole sermon just unpacking this book of James and what was going on. But here's a few simple insights we can get from this first verse that will give us some context. The book of James is written by a man named James. You see it right there, the very first word. Reliable church history tells us that the James who wrote this book was James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, and one of the early leaders in the church in Jerusalem. James was called by God to minister to Jewish believers. He had a ministry specifically to Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We call them Messianic Jews, those Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
James wrote the book of James to Jewish believers, and you can see that in the passage. That's the 12 tribes in the dispersion right there. The 12 tribes is one of the ways that the Bible references the Jewish people. So he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Well, what is this dispersion that James is talking about? Well, initially, the church was first comprised primarily of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That's, that's how the church began. And, you know, before they knew that God was going to blow the top off this thing and that more Gentile believers were going to come into the kingdom and be part of the church than Jewish people. Initially, it was Jewish believers, and they were all meeting together in Jerusalem. And it wasn't long after the church was born that it began to fall under heavy persecution. I mean, remember, Jesus warned his disciples, hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. And the people who were persecuting the Jews were their own brethren. It was Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah persecuting Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the persecution began with verbal attacks and imprisonments, but it quickly escalated to killing people. In fact, Stephen was the first Jewish man recorded in the book of Acts who was martyred for his faith in Jesus. Well, after Stephen was killed, Acts 8.1 tells us that Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were scattered abroad to various foreign lands due to the great persecution that they were experiencing. And that's the dispersion that James was talking about in James 1.1. When he says, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, you have it there in front of you, the 12 tribes in dispersion, he's talking about this verse right here in Acts 8.1. The Jews who were scattered, they started out in Jerusalem, but because they fell under heavy persecution, they were scattered, and they weren't all scattered to one place. They didn't all move from Jerusalem to the, uh, all together to another city. They were scattered across that whole area. And so they were facing all kinds of different circumstances. So can you picture it? Do you have the image of the book of James and where it begins? The book of James is written by James, a Jew, uh, two Jews who were forced out of their homeland because... They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. That's why they were forced out of their homeland. Now, most of us are probably not facing a trial exactly like these Jewish believers faced. I don't know anyone here this morning who had to move from their homeland and come here because they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And I don't know of anyone here this morning who has a loved one a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a child who was killed because of their faith in Jesus. So these Jews were facing some pretty severe trials. And the book of James is written to them. And most of us may, are probably not facing that exact trial, but the thing that we all have in common is as Christians, we are all facing various trials of various kinds, right? And when the Jews were dispersed from their homeland, they all went to different places and the trials they were facing in those different places weren't the same. And sometimes they might be facing a daily trial that was, that was difficult, just one of those daily challenges, you know, the kind of challenges you and I face on the regular. And some of them were facing severe challenges, very, very difficult circumstances. And so, in great wisdom, 
James, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James penned the book of James, and it's a great and wonderful book for us because he wrote it to Christians who are facing trials of various kinds. And that means it's for all of us. We're all believers who are facing trials of various kinds. You know, the trials Rachel and I are facing right now are different than the trials that Jerry and Sandra are facing. They're different than the trials that Seth and Alex are facing or Tom and Kay are facing or Britt and Lauren are facing or Ben and Linda are facing. We're all facing trials of various kinds. And the book of James is a wonderful book because it's got wisdom that's for all of us, regardless of the trial that you're facing. So with that context from James 1.1 in our hearts, we can move into the opening of James' letter and what he wrote to those Jews in dispersion. What he wrote to those Jewish believers who are facing some pretty difficult trials. So the message title again this morning is right there, Oh My Soul, in various trials, that's James 1, 2 through 4, seek God's wisdom. That's James 5 through 8. So let's look at James 1, 2 through 4. What does James say? Count it all joy. I'll say that again. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Doesn't that sound like what you'd like the condition of your soul to be in various trials? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's so much we could break down from these verses, but we're going to narrow our focus to just one insight. James says, what should you do when you face various trials? He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Now, come on, James, that's a bold statement. I mean, you're talking to some Jews who have had family members martyred. You're talking to Jews who have been separated in their families because some of their family members are in prison. You're talking to Jews who have been kicked out of their homeland. They're in some pretty severe grief right now, James, and you are so bold and have the audacity to say, count it all joy when you face those kinds of trials? Who exactly is James to tell us that we should count it all joy if we're in the middle of severe trials? I mean, come on, in some circles, those are fighting words right there. Count it all joy in the middle of my trials? What gives James the credibility to talk to suffering people that way? Well, of course, we know that one reason he has the credibility is because this book is in the scriptures and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit as a message for us. But there's something else that gives James quite a bit of credibility when it comes to talking to Jews or any Christian who is suffering because of various trials. During the dispersion, the scripture says that James stayed behind James stayed in Jerusalem while all the other Christians, the Jewish Christians, scattered in order to escape suffering. James stayed in the hot spot. 
He stayed right there at ground zero, right in the middle of that suffering. And history tells us that James was so dependent on God and was such a man of prayer that his knees were visibly deformed and calloused because of how much time he spent on them in prayer. And then James' life came to an end when he was martyred for his faith. He was thrown off a high point of the Temple Mount. And when he hit the bottom, uh, his life, he didn't die immediately. So Jews at the bottom finished off the job by beating him to death. And the story goes that as they were beating him to death, James prayed for them until the life left his body. Now tell me, isn't that the kind of Christian that you would like some input from when you face trials of various kinds? I think James has some credibility here when he says to you and to me, no matter what the circumstance you are facing is, to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. He says that the testing of your faith, that's what trials do, right? They test our faith. That the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. Can we go back on the screen to James 1, 2 through 4 real quick? I want to put that back up there. The testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. That word steadfastness, some translate it patience. Some translate it long-suffering. We don't have an English word that's equivalent to that Greek word. That Greek word right there, a lot of times we say patience. What we mean is twiddling your thumbs and being patient while you're waiting in the doctor's office, right? Or like a ship on a sea in the storm, just kind of floats there on the waves. That's maybe more of an image for our word for patience and what we normally think. But this Greek word is not like that. It's an active endurance. It's an active endurance. It's like that ship not just being tossed by the waves, but intentionally working its way through the ocean, like on point, headed to a destination, and the things that are going on around it that are testing it and trials and tossing it, that it's not deterring it from its destination. That's the idea of this steadfastness that James says the trials that you and I face in our life are going to produce. And when that, stead, that kind of steadfastness is produced through the testing of our faith, James says that it's going to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. In other words, what he's saying is you're going to become more like Jesus. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing through the trials. I heard one preacher say it this way. He said, imagine like mixing up some cake. And when you put the ingredients in a bowl for cake and you look in that bowl before you mix it all up, if you said, ooh, taste this, you go, no, I don't want to taste that. That looks pretty gross. But it's like, hang on, give it some time. Hang on just a minute. And that's like the trials and the ingredients that go into these various tests. And then you put it in that oven and it goes through the fire. And when it comes out, what you have? Oh, man, that's okay. There's perfect and complete lacking nothing, according to Britt Clay, who loves desserts, right? He told you to bring the great ones. I think turkey is the best ingredient in a Thanksgiving meal, but he's the dessert guy on the staff team. So that's what it's like. It's like you go through these trials and it tests you. And what God knows is that he's using those to produce in you something incredible, like his will in you, that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. So James has all this credibility because 
He trusted that. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, right? In the way he wrote these words, but he lived it out to the point of his death, all the way up to his last breath. He lived this out. He's the kind of Christian I want insights from. When I face trials of various kinds. And I like James. He says, when you face the trials. You're going to face them, right? There's some narratives out there that say you're not going to face a trial. Like if you just do the right things, you can escape suffering. Come on now. Jesus told us that we're going to experience suffering in this world. And James says, no, not if you face trials. When? When you face trials of various kind. Count it all joy. But won't there be times when you face various trials and you don't know exactly what to do? Like you say to God, God, I want to count it all joy. But this circumstance, I don't know how to handle that. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. I'm willing, but what is it that you want me to do? Well, that brings us to the second part of the passage and the final part of the text from James 1, 1 through 8 this morning. In verses 5 through 8, James calls believers in various trials to seek God's wisdom. Oh, my soul, in various trials, seek God's wisdom. Look at James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God. There it is. Who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. That's the promise. And then the condition with that promise. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the lord he is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways so what's james saying man i know you guys are facing challenges and trials of various kinds and I know that you want to please God in them, but sometimes you struggle to know exactly what to do in the middle of those challenges. And you know what you need when you're in that place? You need God's wisdom. You need wisdom from on high. Then James tells Christians exactly what they should do when they lack wisdom. What should you do? Remember, wisdom is the ability to correctly apply the right truth to your current situation. So hey, when you don't know what to do, what you need is wisdom. Ask God what to do. And according to James, what should you do when you lack God's or when you lack wisdom in a various trial? What should you do? And James says three things in that passage I want you to note. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God in faith with no doubting. And ask God with single-mindedness. Don't be double-minded. So he says, ask God for wisdom. When you're in a various trial and you don't know what to do, ask God for wisdom, as opposed to asking something or someone else. Ask God. I mean, how quick are we to go open up a book or launch a podcast or find a sermon on YouTube or to go to a friend or to go to social media whenever we need advice and we're looking for the right thing to do instead of going to God 
and asking God for wisdom when James 1, 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. It's really clear right there. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't go open those things? I'm saying you shouldn't do it before you ask God. That's what I'm saying. You should ask God for wisdom before you go to anyone else. And God may direct you when you ask him, oh, you need to go talk to Bennett. He's been through some of those things and he can tell you about that kind of a situation. Oh, Hugh Sauer knows some stuff about this and I want you to go talk to him. And so now, or, or here's a book. I, I brought this across your path a month ago. I want you to read this book, go read this book. So the Holy Spirit may direct you to things that are gonna help you as you're seeking God's wisdom. But he says, first, ask God. Don't go to something else before you ask God. And we should do that because the promises with this are incredible. You know, our souls don't just need any kind of wisdom. Our souls need God's wisdom in various trials that test our faith. God's wisdom is different than the world's wisdom. God's wisdom is different than man's wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 19. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. God's wisdom is not the same as the wisdom of this world. God's wisdom is not the same as man's wisdom. When you face trials of various kinds and you don't know what to do, go ask God first. For his wisdom. And you know what he promises? To give it freely, generously, liberally to anyone who asks, to all is what the passage says. Like no, uh, no uh, separating of persons. He's, uh, he's going to give it to you if you ask for wisdom. He says, I'm going to give it to all. Man. And he says without reproach. That means he's not going to despise you for asking. God wants you to ask him for wisdom. God wants you to come to him. Wisdom is like a superpower. It's that supernatural ability to correctly apply the right truth to your situation. And James wants Christians in various trials. Any of you in a various trial right now? James wants Christians in various trials to know what to do. If you lack wisdom, go ask God. That's the first thing that you should do. Ask God for wisdom. Then if you lack God for wisdom, ask in faith. Ask God in faith. I wonder how you felt when I was reading that passage first. Isn't it easy when it says, oh, ask God for wisdom, and he's going to give it freely, generously, liberally to anyone who asks without reproaching. You're like, yes, 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 I just need to ask God for wisdom. And then it says, but ask in faith with no doubting. And if you don't ask that way, you shouldn't suppose that you're going to get anything from God. And then you go, ooh, wait, okay. Do I have enough faith? What is faith? How do, I, how do I ask God for wisdom and faith? Like, and I don't want it to become mystical to you so that it deters you from asking God in wisdom. So I want you to really understand what the Bible is talking about when it says to ask in faith. James 1.6 says that when we ask God for wisdom, we must ask in faith with no doubting. So what does it mean to ask God for wisdom with faith? Well, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. So if you want to know what the Bible means by faith, you ask the Bible what it means by faith. And in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the scripture gives a definition of faith. And here it is. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what is faith? It's that ability 
to peel back the curtain that separates the natural from the supernatural, and not just to be on this side of the curtain, but to be able to look beyond and see the activity in the spiritual realm. To be able to look beyond that and trust there is more to my situation that meets the eye. There is more to this trial than meets the eye. There is more to my suffering than meets the eye. It is not just about this moment. Let him ask in faith. Faith enables us to not just look at what is seen, but it enables us to look at to the things that are unseen. When the natural person experiences trial, what do they do? They look only to the natural. They look for wisdom that is just natural wisdom. But when a person of faith experiences trials, they do not just look at what is visible. They look at what is invisible. They look to the things that aren't seen. They peel back that curtain and look with spiritual eyes. Paul had his own way of describing that kind of faith. It's the kind of faith we got to ask for wisdom in. When Paul was talking about trials in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, this is what Paul said. So we do not lose heart. Heart's a word that's like soul language. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That inner self, another soul language. For this light, momentary affliction. That's Paul's take on our suffering. Again, who, what gives you the credibility, Paul? We won't go into that, but you guys have read his credentials, right? I mean, he's got quite a bit of credibility when it comes to suffering here. And he calls suffering, which he suffered more than I ever have, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's got his eyes beyond the other side of that veil. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The words, world's wisdom will not tell you to sell your house and all your possessions and to move to a foreign country where you're going to be a witness for the gospel until the day you die. But God's wisdom just might. The world's not going to tell you that your car breaking down and you not having enough money in your bank account to fix that car is a testing of your faith that's going to produce patience and make you perfect and complete lacking nothing. But God will tell you that. And he will encourage you to seek his wisdom so that before you just go swipe that credit card and get into more debt, you seek him and ask him what to do. The world's wisdom is not going to tell you to start taking care of some kids that are in crisis like Stephen and Ann and Dellinger just started doing six days ago when they welcomed uh, a little girl through foster care into their home. And it disrupts your whole life and it makes everything more challenging and difficult. And the world's wisdom is not going to tell you to do that, but God's wisdom might just tell you to go and do that. The world's wisdom and God's wisdom aren't the same because the world's just looking at the natural and God's looking at the eternal. He's looking at the supernatural, and there's not one situation that we face or one thing that we suffer that is wasted because God uses it all for his glory. And eyes of faith is when you see it that way. So when you go and ask God for wisdom, let's not make it mystical. You ask him faith. What does that mean? I'm not just going to think about the here and now God. I'm going to think about the eternal I'm going to expect that because you see the whole picture, whatever wisdom you give me may sound like folly to the world. 
But to you, you see the whole picture and you're taking into account the supernatural. And you're prioritizing the spiritual ahead of the physical. And when I go to you in wisdom, I'm going to go in faith looking past that veil and expecting that your answer is going to take me beyond that veil. That it's not just going to be here, but it's going to be eternal. That's what God's wisdom is like. So now it doesn't have to be mystical. Oh, do I have enough faith? Have I mustered enough faith? Do you believe that God's going to give you an answer beyond the veil? Do you believe that God's going to talk to you about spiritual things, not just how to fix your car? If you believe that, you're asking in faith. You're going to God and you're asking in faith. So when you ask God for wisdom, you should ask in faith with no doubting. And then the last observation here is ask God with single-mindedness. Don't be double-minded. You cannot receive God's wisdom if you're double-minded, according to this passage in James. What is it to me, double-minded? What does that mean? To be double-minded means your affections are split between the things of God and the things of this world. A double-minded person loathes the thought of giving up the things of heaven and despises any notion that they're going to have to let go of something in this world. The rich young ruler is an example of someone who was double-minded. What did he want? Oh, God, give me eternal life. Oh, but I'm not willing to let go of my possessions here. That's an example of someone who is double-minded. Their affections are split between God and the things of this world. One theologian likened double-mindedness to a person who has two souls, figuratively, obviously, but a person who has two souls. One soul longs for the things of heaven, while the other is consumed with the things of this world. And James says that the person who lacks faith and doubts is double-minded, and they're like a wave of the sea tossed around by the wind. And that's a very fitting illustration, that wave of the sea, because when I think about the wave of the sea and its characteristics, I can see how it's like the person who's double-minded, the person whose affections are split between the things of this world and the things of God. A wave of the sea is without rest. So is the person who's double-minded, constantly conflicted in their soul. One moment, oh God, for your kingdom, for your glory, the next moment, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to lose that money. I'm afraid I'm going to lose that security. Oh, I don't want to do what God's saying there because I love that stuff that he's asking me to use or my time that he's asking me to give. They're without rest because they're back and forth all the time. A wave of the sea is unstable. So is the person who is double-minded. You can't predict what they're going to do because they're back and forth all the time. Hey, am I talking to the guy who has the eternal mindset or am I talking to the guy who loves the things of this world? I don't know which one I'm going to be talking to this time. They're unstable. A wave of the sea is driven by the wind. And so is the person who's double-minded. Their circumstances, their emotions, their thoughts just carry them away wherever it wants to go. They don't have that steadfastness, that enduring, active enduring faith. So their circumstances just carry them around. And a wave of the sea is capable of great destruction. And so is the person who's double-minded. It's amazing how much destruction that person can bring when their affections are split between God and this world. You cannot receive God's wisdom if your affections are divided. Listen again. Listen. 
seek God's wisdom? You cannot receive God's wisdom if your affections are divided. If you are double-minded, split in your affections, you should not expect to receive anything from God, according to James. Loving God's wisdom and loving this world are diametrically opposed to one another. They cannot coexist. To get God's wisdom, you must end your love affair with the things of this world and be single-minded in your affections towards God. End the love affair with the world. End it. End it like somebody who's cheating or thinking about cheating should end the relationship with the person that they're thinking about cheating with. End your love affair with the things of this world. Stop it. Cut it off. Make God the chief desire of your heart. If you will, your soul will find what it needs. In various trials, oh my soul, seek God's wisdom. And that's the title of this message. So with that understanding, read the passage with me again from James 1, 1 through 8. See, if you, see how we treated the text. See if you really understand this as we read it through. Let the word of God just wash over your soul. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what various trials are you facing right now where you need God's wisdom? Where your soul needs God's wisdom? I asked God how he wanted me to lead you to specifically apply this message this morning. And this is the word that the Lord gave me for you this morning to encourage you to apply it this way. Many of you lack God's wisdom because your soul is too full of stuff. Some of you have stuff in your soul that is total garbage. And what I'm talking about are those inherently sinful things. These sins aren't just crowding your soul, but they're polluting it. There's lots of garbage sins that can pollute our souls. But God told me as I was seeking him in prayer this morning, that there are some listening, whether online or in this room, that have some specific sins that are polluting their souls. And they need to seek God's wisdom and end their love affair with these things. Pornography and sexual sin, unforgiveness, and even hatred, anger, a love of money, slander and gossip, a love for food or substance, abuse of sleep, and duplicity, living a double life. These are what I'm calling garbage stuff that will not just overcrowd your soul, but it will pollute your soul. 
Don't you know that your soul deals with enough without you harassing it with sin? Turn from your sin and seek God for what your soul really needs, his wisdom. So what should you do if one of these things are what you're dealing with? Well, you should repent. You should repent and turn to God and you should end your love affair with these things of the world. You should get like serious about it. Like when the Lord set me free from an addiction to pornography, it came with such a heavy conviction that what I was doing was burning down my house and my family, my life, that it was polluting my soul. It fell on me heavy. It was a gift of the Lord. And when he gave me that heavy conviction, it led me to repentance. You need that kind of conviction this morning. You need to ask God for it. Maybe he's already given it to you right now. And you need to repent and turn from that sin. If you don't know the Lord as your personal savior, then your soul's full of sin. It's polluted all the time. And you need to come to him and ask him to forgive all your sins, to trust him to make you a new person in Christ so that you can have the power that you need from Jesus to walk out this truth and to live free from sin that pollutes and garbage, fills your soul with garbage. And if you know the Lord, you need to turn from these sins and seek him first. Make him the chief affection of your heart. And then there's others here who may not have an ongoing sin issue like these that pollute your soul that I mentioned a moment ago, but their souls are crammed full of stuff and there's no room left for seeking God's wisdom because your full soul is just packed, packed with stuff. Your soul is like a workspace that has so much stuff in it that no, nothing can be found and no meaningful work can be done in that space. It's like, oh, I want to get this done. I can't find that and there's nowhere to work because everything is crammed. And God's like, hey, here's my wisdom for you. Oh, wait, here's... Here's my wisdom, here's my wisdom, and there's no room in your soul to receive God's wisdom. Some of you are spending an ungodly amount of time on your cell phone. Like if you checked your screen time and were honest with yourself, you would go, Woo, I feel like every moment that I have free with flipping through my phone on stuff, and there's no room in your soul for God's wisdom. Or you live for entertainment and you're always looking for that next opportunity to get to your favorite show, your favorite movie, that favorite thing that you do to disconnect and disengage your mind. Or your thoughts are obsessed with something temporal, something that's not going to last forever, and you keep spinning and spinning and spinning in that thought instead of setting your mind on things above. Or you're consumed with the media, and this time of year, gotta say, especially politics, right? And, and instead of, and I'm not saying not keeping an eye, well, we should keep an eye on that stuff and we have a responsibility to vote and, and those things, but should it consume us? Oh, we trust a sovereign God who's the one who places every authority in this world, according to Romans. So, but it's spinning and it's full and you're worried and you're grieving things that you've lost in this country and it's, and it's filling your soul so that you can't seek God's wisdom. And your mind gets fixated on things that are not even necessarily true. You know what I'm talking about? Something starts you down a rabbit hole and you say, well, I bet that person was meaning this. And then all of a sudden you've spent 30 minutes speculating and spinning on what that person did and what it probably meant. And by the time you're done, you basically believe that it's true, even though you have no information that would help you found your, your claim and your position. But you're spinning and spinning and spinning on it. And your soul, because of these things, has no room for God's wisdom. If your soul is being polluted or overcrowded by these things, you won't have room to seek God's wisdom. Unchecked, these things will lead you to double-mindedness. It will split your affections between this world and God. Silence what is of this world. 
so that you can make space in your soul for God and for his wisdom. You know what the rich young ruler should have done? He should have done what Jesus said. He should have detached himself from the things of this world and followed Jesus. And that's what you should do too. You should detach yourself from the things of this world and follow Jesus. So in light of this message, what do you need to do? Give your affections to God. That's the first thing you need to do. Give all your affections to God. Withdraw your affections from this world. Decide to make him the chief desire, the supreme affection of your soul. End your love affair with the things of this world and make room in your soul for God's wisdom. And then seek God's wisdom in faith in your various trials. And I leave you with this practical how do you take that next step? Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to paraphrase him instead of reading his quote, but I loved what he said in the message. He said, do you believe that God gives wisdom generously to anyone who asks for it? Liberally? That he gives it to all? Well, then if you believe it, do this. Go and organize your thoughts the best you can in your present trial and organize them in such a way like you would tell them to one of your best friends or to someone that you really trust for advice and that you're going to follow their advice, whatever they say. And then sit down with God and explain it to him just like you would explain it to one of your friends. I think sometimes we get in front of God and we go, okay, God, you know what I need? Go. Have you had that happen? And James 1 tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask him like a person because he is a person, like it's a relationship because it is a relationship. Formulate your problem, write it down, get it organized, then go sit alone with God and ask him for wisdom and see what he tells you to do. He might say, go talk to this person. He might give you the answer right there. He might direct you to a passage in his word, but ask God for wisdom and expect him to tell you his wisdom if you ask in faith. So will you do it? Whatever it is in your life right now, will you do it? Let's bow in prayer. Would you take just a moment and ask God? Consider what you need to ask him about. You may have some work to do before you can ask God. You may need to organize this some more. But what's the trial you're facing right now? What's the situation that you're in? Where do you need God's wisdom, the correct truth applied to your current situation? Ask God for his wisdom. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Oh, my soul, you need God's wisdom. Oh, my soul, you need God's wisdom. You're so distressed, soul, apart from his wisdom when you don't know what to do? Lord, we need your wisdom. We pray right now, God, that you would give it to us and that we would do our part that you revealed so clearly in your word through James, what an incredible witness. Lord, help our souls to seek your wisdom the way you say to do it, to ask you and to ask in faith with a single-mindedness, no division in our affections, trusting that you're going to peel back the curtain and give us an answer that's out of this world. Lord, make us people of faith. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. God, we pray.
that you would guide us first to you before we go anywhere else. Lord, work in our hearts as we seek you and your kingdom first, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us and let's seek the Lord as we close with this song.